Anglicanism has always taught, and I will be very blunt about this, because there will be people who obviously disagree with me, but Anglicanism has always taught that there are seven sacraments, but has made a division between, the, between two sets, and I want to make this abundantly clear. Um, first, you have uh, those sacraments which are generally necessary for salvation, right? right? Which, are, which are given by Christ as generally necessary for salvation. Here's a problem with how a lot of people do this they don't keep reading. So they read a phrase, and then they're like, oh, good, we're done. Uh, and it's like, no, you have to keep reading. You have to keep reading on because every phrase is contingent to the other uh, and so forth. So you have, to be, you have to be intent on reading and reading well. So you can't take things out of context. And a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, there are only two sacraments, and then the other five are something else. No, that's not what, that's not what the articles say. It's not what Anglicanism says, and I'm, I'll explain why. Um, because uh, the 39 Articles, which are um, kind of a foundational Anglican document, describe these other five as what are commonly called sacraments. Okay? So what are they? They're called sacraments, because we don't call things what they aren't. Okay? So they're called sacraments, and, and that's a common usage. But there's a desire among Anglicans to make it clear that these are not necessary for, necessary for salvation. Well, what's the agenda here? I'm going to make this abundantly clear to you. What's being made clear here is that one must not, does not need, okay, let me be there really quick, does not need to make a confession prior to death to go to heaven, okay, as was being taught in much of the Catholic Church in the West prior, during the Reformation, okay, and even after the Reformation. One also does not need be anointed um, in extreme unction in order to be saved, right, not even in a general way. That's, that's what's being said by this distinction. All right? I want to make that very, very clear. There are a lot of Anglicans that are very, very deeply confused about this. They say, well, no, there are only two sacraments. And like, No, you're not reading it properly. Right? Um, the articles say that they are commonly called sacraments. Just like uh, if you look at old prayer books and you, and you look up the, the collect for Christmas, which is, uh, which is called the Feast of the Nativity of Our Lord Jesus Christ, it says, commonly called Christmas. Why does it say commonly called Christmas? Because that's what it's called, okay? <laughs> because that's what it is, all right? Um, and, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a wild thing about people. They sort of think, well, we can call things what they're not. We can call things what they're not. Uh, no. Um, let's, let's, be, let's, be, let's be abundantly clear about this, all right? So when we're speaking about these other sacraments, we're saying they're not generally necessary for salvation. Um, but let's, let's just go through the questions. Um, question 116, are there other sacraments? Other rites and institutions, commonly called sacraments, include confirmation, absolution, ordination, marriage, and anointing of the sick. These are sometimes called the sacraments of the church. Okay, this is good stuff, um, because I will make this distinction later, and Alex knows this. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the Apocrypha and the Old and New Testaments, right? Is the Apocrypha the Word of God, according to Anglicans? No. Uh, but it is... It is Ecclesi they are ecclesiastical writings. I mean, they're read in church, right? Um, and this is the same thing, right? And one need not be ordained to go to heaven, thanks be to God, right? One need not be married to go to heaven, thanks be to God, right? Um, so you see where this is going? We want to be really clear about this, right? Um, and that's why we refer to them as other institutions or rites. Um, so um, so we've got to be clear about this. Marriage is both a rite and an institution, to give an example, okay? Um, confession or absolution is a right, 
but not an institution, right? Uh, or holy orders, a rite and an institution, right? Do you see the, do you see the distinction there? Um, and they're called sacraments of the church, which, by the way, is no slight, right? Um, uh, we, 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 again, are modern people, and we like to downplay the church. Um, this is not coming out of a place where anybody is seeking to downplay the church. To be a sacrament of the church is not, is not a denigration, all right? So I say all that in clarity, because what we're about to talk about is incredibly important things. But let's say this. They're never required. Okay, got it? Right? I'm never going to sit here and tell you, you must do this or you must do that. Right? You must get married. You must be ordained. You must, uh, because we never say that. Why don't we say that? You should know the answer to this by now. Because we're Anglicans, and we only require what Scripture requires. <laughs> do you see? Scripture doesn't say, you must be absolved of your sins by a priest. We never say that. Um, we never say, you must be anointed with oil prior to your death. Never say that. Now, do we say you can be, and it's really good? Yes, absolutely, we do say that. Do you see the difference? Um, and so I want to make sure these are all very clear. Now, of course, no one in the Reformation was saying one must be married in order to go to heaven when, when they die. But, but there was a sense, and I think this is really important, there was a sense that, um, that those in holy orders or those in the monastic life were living an exalted Christian life. Okay? And Martin Luther actually talks about this in, in some great sermons on marriage, where he says, listen, marriage is an equal estate with ordination. And he's one of the, one of the reformers arguing for married clergy. Thanks be to God, right? I can say that very strongly. Um, because all of this is to say that one of, the, one of the emphases in the Reformation is to restore the dignity of the laity. Um, it's to restore the dignity and the, and, the, and the role and the vocation of lay people as either married or, um, or as uh, people who, who can live a full Christian life um, without being ordained or without being a monk or a nun. Okay, you got it? Okay. And that's a really particularly the Anglican thing because um, we actually don't have a separate daily office for monks and nuns as we do for lay people. We have the same thing. Everybody uses the same thing. It's called the daily office um, because, because there's a great... Um, and again, this isn't kind of egalitarianism. This is all in the spirit of saying we're Christians together. Okay. So I want you to hear that. All right. How do these differ from the sacraments of the gospel? They are not commanded by Christ as necessary for salvation, but arise from the practice of the apostles and the early church, or are states of life blessed by God from creation. God clearly uses them as means of grace. So one of the things the articles say is that, um, is that, um, that these sacraments have changed in the, in the way that they're administered following the time of the apostles. Um, it can seem a little bit more harsh than that, but basically that the, that the way that they're administered changes. Now, we can all agree to that because that's just historically verifiable, right? Um, a great example would be uh, uh, how, um, how ordination has been done historically. It's been very different through the years. Um, how confirmation, I mean, confirmation, if you're looking for a sacrament that's a little bit schizophrenic, confirmation's it. It's all over the map. It's insane. It, it floats from one thing to another, one theology to another. Um, there's never been a sure theology of confirmation ever. If you're looking for it, it's just not there. But we do know that this prayer for uh, the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be multiplied is something which is done often, and it's done only for those who can make an adult profession. Got it? So we'll say more about that as time goes on. Um, now, that's different 
from, uh, from uh, baptism in the Eucharist because these are not commanded by Christ to all the faithful. Um, they are not commanded as necessary for salvation. And, um, and they are as well, for these later sacraments, are states of life blessed by God from creation. So one of the distinctions here that I find, that I find really interesting is to say marriage is a sacrament, yes, but it's also a state of life that precedes the dominical sacraments. So it's to say that, um, that God takes what has already been given in creation and raises it to the status of a sacrament. Okay? Or, so Jesus does that. Okay? All right, we ready? Let's jump in. We're going to talk about confirmation today. Now, some of you are thinking about and you're, and you're praying about whether or not you want to be confirmed. And I want to, want to put that out there for you. Um, some of you are even preparing for baptism. Uh, confirmations will happen, God willing, during Lent this year, unless I can get the date switched, which I'm trying to switch. Um, keep in mind that our bishop is, is in a bad way health-wise, and so a lot of things have to be moved around. But, but we will be having confirmations at some point in the spring. I'm certain we can get it done. Um, and and um, so, so think about all this while this is going on, and I'll, I'll, I'll explain as we get through it. What is confirmation? After making a mature commitment to my baptismal covenant with God, I received the laying on of the bishop's hands with prayer. And here, a reference is made, these scriptural references. Listen, we don't have time to get to all of them, but if you want to study the catechism on your own and look up Bible references, you'll have an absolute ball if you like that sort of thing, looking up, oh my goodness, that's interesting too. Like, wow, that's amazing. Uh, so I want to practice some of that with you. Um, the reference from, cha from Acts chapter 8 uh, comes out of the time immediately following the death of Stephen. Remember, the death of Stephen happens in Acts chapter 7, and um, this is when Saul is going around the city, rounding up Christians and throwing them in prison. We just read this in the Daily Office. Simon, uh, this man who is a kind of sorcerer, a practicer of magic, um, hears the gospel. He responds. Um, here, this would be... Um, when the gospel is proclaimed uh, by Philip, uh, this is verse 12 of chapter 8, um, many people respond and they're baptized, both men and women. In verse 13, we read, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. After seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So this magician is amazed by this. And then, um, these are Sumerians, and, uh, and they, 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 the, the apostles um, said, because they hear that these Sumerians have have responded to the Word of God. Now, this is a really wild thing, because uh, prior to Acts chapter 8, the only people who had been baptized were Jews. And Sumerians are what? They're kind of Jews. They're kind of not. What are they? Who knows? They're Samaritans. <laughs> and so these people are receiving the gospel, and they're being baptized. And so the apostles send Peter and John up to Samaria to pray for uh, these people. They came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So the apostles believe that they can, and they know this because it's happening, can lay their hands on people and they will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what do we teach? Do we teach that the Holy Spirit is given in baptism or in confirmation? baptism, right? These are, this is a wild time, right? Everything's chaotic. Um, 
And so for Philip to baptize uh, people in the name of Jesus only is kind of like a slip-up in a sense, because the apostles are going to go and say, hold up, Philip. I know this is happening in the background. It's not recorded, but I'm sure this happened. Like, hold up, Philip. What did you baptize in? Oh, yeah, in the name of Jesus. It was great. Uh, no, Jesus told us to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay, it'll never happen again. See? Like, so this is happening, but they lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And this issues in this understanding that happens where people are baptized, and this happens throughout the ancient church, where they're baptized and then presented to the bishop to be anointed with oil, hands laid on their heads, and they are prayed for that they'll receive the outpouring of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And this, in essence, is what we say confirmation is. Um, it is affirming up of the gifts that are given in baptism. It's an increase of those gifts. Okay? Um, so it, it takes a mature commitment, right? We say, as Anglicans, clearly, like, babies may not be confirmed. I know that's happened in history, but, you know, we just, we just don't do that because we want them to, to proclaim the faith personally. Um, and we receive the laying on of the bishop's hands with prayer. Now, some people will come to Christ Church and they'll say, I was a Roman Catholic, I was confirmed by a priest, does that count? And in our diocese, we say, sure, because in the economy of the whole thing, it's, it's just better to say yes than, than not, because they're given that authority. Um, but we as Anglicans, only bishops confirm, and we're very clear about that, and it's why we have so dang many of them. Um, come on, that was a joke. <laughs> um, you know, the only thing bishops are good for is basically confirmation. I'm kidding. Um, so this is, this is the what of it. And so I'd say to you, as you discern whether or not you want to be confirmed, this is the question you need to be asking, is can I make a mature commitment to Jesus Christ and to, to the faith as I've received it? And do I want to receive the laying on of a bishop's hands with prayer to receive the increased gifts of the Holy Spirit? And you should really wonder about that, frankly, because many people have told me through the years that immediately following their confirmation, things started to happen. Things started to move, right? They found themselves uh, in seminary a year later, or they found themselves going and becoming missionaries, or they found themselves volunteering to become the heads of all kinds of ministries in the church. And, and listen, if you're confirmed, I'm going to say being a part of a ministry at Christ Church is not optional, right? This is what you're signing on for. <laughs> um, and so keep that in mind as well. Um, but this has been a wonderful thing for so many people because um, they also see it in another light, which is to say it's not wrong, it's just an accessory to what's actually happening, which is they see it as, I'm joining up, I'm signing on the dotted line, I want to be a part of this. Okay? But that's not the thing. Okay? The thing is to profess the faith and receive the laying off hands for the increase of the Holy Spirit. See the, do you see the point? So a lot of people say, I'm becoming an Anglican today. Well, that's true, I guess, but you know, we really teach that Anglicans are all those who worship according to the prayer book. So you're, you're kind of in that world already. Um, ha, ha, ha. Um, but a lot of people will just sort of like say, okay, well, I'm, I'm joining up now. Okay, hope that's clear. What grace does God give you in confirmation? In confirmation, God strengthens the work of the Holy Spirit in me for his daily increase in my Christian life and ministry. He strengthens the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that is to say, we believe very firmly that the Holy Spirit is given in baptism. Now, can the Holy Spirit be given in another way, as we've said before? Absolutely. God does whatever He wants, and we pay attention, right? That's how it is. Uh, but we know that He gives the Holy Spirit in baptism. We know that we know that we know. Um, why? Because it's in the Bible. Okay, I'm just going to clarify that. All right. Um, it's to say that, um, that what, we're, what the bishop is praying for is for the is for the strengthening of the work of the Holy Spirit in me. And there's this uh, prayer for a daily increase in the Christian life and ministry. Um, okay. What else is that? That's it. 
That's all in, that's all in confirmation. Right? Now, if you're looking for a really handy-dandy way to memorize the sacraments, here's, here's how it goes. You memorize baptism in the Eucharist, or generally necessary for salvation. Stick them over here. You put confirmation next, and you say, okay, that's confirmation. And then keep this in mind. Two sacraments for healing, two sacraments of vocation, all right? Two sacraments of healing, two for vocation. That's how we've laid it out in the catechism. It makes it very easy to memorize, and so um, I want to offer that to you as a way to just keep it in mind. And you'll, it'll just occur to you very quickly. It's like, okay, baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, absolution, unction, uh, marriage, and holy orders. Okay, see, works really well. All right, now you've memorized something already this morning. Amazing. We'll, we'll get through them. What is absolution? After repenting and confessing my sins to God in the presence of a priest, the priest declares God's forgiveness to me with authority given by God. For here, I'm actually going to look up this scripture reference as well. John chapter 20, verses 22 to 23. This is the morning of the resurrection. John chapter 20. Um, And Jesus has appeared uh, to the disciples. Uh, all of them but Thomas are there, because where's Thomas? God, who knows where Thomas is? He's, he's, he's hiding or something. Um, of course, they're hiding too, because they're behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, so let's, not, let's give them some credit, okay? Um, they're there, and Jesus comes to them um, behind these locked doors, and he says, peace be with you. Um, this is this is this is the most wild thing. Peace be with you is a Sabbath greeting for Jews. Um, it's it's a um, you know if you're ever in Israel, this is kind of the modern equivalent of it. It's people walk around saying Shabbat Shalom, right? That's what you say uh, to people as soon as uh, Shabbat comes around. But this isn't this isn't Saturday, friends. This is Sunday morning, and he says, "Peace be with you." Do you see what's going on? Sabbath is lasting. Sabbath is continuing. Um, and this is to say that the peace of God has come in the risen Christ. Okay. You hear what it, listen to this. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And, he, and then he says to them, and they, so the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and he said to them, again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me... Now, keep in mind, how does the Eucharistic liturgy begin when we get to that, after, the, after all the prayers? The peace of the Lord be always with you. Huh? And you'll note, if, if you're watching the priest, what do we do? I show you my hands. Right? This, is, this is a reenactment of, of the resurrection. Um, it's to say, here's, we're entering into the mysteries of the resurrection. Okay? Um, this is a reconciliation which is taking place. Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So this first thing. If you, have, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So the apostles are given the power, in the power of the resurrection, in the power of Jesus' resurrection, to forgive sins. You might say, I didn't know that was in the Bible. Well, it is. Um, so you've got you to gotta make sense of it, okay? Uh, but, but listen to this. Very first thing, right out of the gate, resurrection morning, he says, basically to the apostles, you have the authority uh, to forgive sins. Now, what do they do with this? More than likely, they do it just as Jesus did it, right? Um, the Gospels are filled with accounts where, where people with all kinds of maladies and infirmities uh, come to Jesus, and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. 
And then they're all aghast, like, well, why didn't she just tell him to walk? Well, I did that too. Um, but which is e- what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven and rise, take up your pallet and walk. Easier to say, rise, take up your pallet and walk, and sins are forgiven. But I can do that too, right? Because the authority's there. So Jesus takes this divine authority, this divine ability to forgive sins, and he gives it to the apostles. Okay, well, what do they do with it? Well, if you read the Acts of the Apostles, they forgive constantly with authority. Even Simon, when we go back to Acts chapter 8, Simon is forgiven. Um, Many are restored. And part of the understanding in the ancient church is that people can sin grievously after baptism and be restored by this power of absolution. Now, back in the ancient church, if you sinned, it was kind of sin unto death, okay? So that's why there's this, this delay of baptism, which we talked about last week, which often was very complicated. But if you sin grievously after baptism, you would usually spend about the 40 days of Lent in sackcloth and ashes on the steps of the church, begging to be received back in. You would be barred from communion, and that was how it went. Okay? Um, if you happened to sin before Lent, many months before Lent, you would be barred from communion until Lent, when you would enter into this period of fasting and sackcloth and ashes and all of that. You would make a public confession on the night, of, on the night before the Easter Vigil, as the baptismal candidates are making their profession of faith, you make a profession, you make a public confession to the church of your sins. And then what happens is the bishop absolves you and embraces you. And you are restored to the communion and fellowship of the church at the Easter Vigil. Amazing thing, right? And it's as if you're entering back into that baptismal moment again. Um, of course, this becomes very complicated, doesn't it? Think about, the, think about what might happen. Okay, uh, I know this is going to be really hard for a lot of you, and some of you don't know about this, some of you do, but I had sex with Dale Johnson's wife. And Dale's like, what the heck, man? Like, <laughs> so, so it creates this division in the church, right? Um, and that's very known. Or I stole a bunch of money from so-and-so who's right there. You know, it doesn't work, does it? Um, so there's a kind of wisdom which is exercised here, and the, the wisdom that's exercised here is that um, and, and keep in mind also, this was a one-time deal. You got one time you could do this. And that didn't work out either, um, mainly because people are people and it gets really difficult. And you can see real repentance and say, like, well, how's that, how's that supposed to function? Um, so this is where in the, in the very early centuries, fourth, fifth centuries, we start to have this practice of what we call auricular confession, meaning that people can come to a priest, come to a bishop, um, confess their sins and be absolved and receive that restoration. Um, and it's totally private and the seal is absolute. Okay, So uh, let's ask this next question. What grace does God give to you in absolution? In absolution, God conveys to me his pardon through the cross, thus declaring to me reconciliation and peace with him and bestowing upon me the assurance of his grace and salvation. Um, this is the key to understanding what happens in this sacrament. Um, it's that God conveys to me his pardon through the cross. So anytime you come to confession, what you're actually doing is you're coming to the foot of the cross with your many sins and depositing them there. Okay. One way I often describe confession is it's, it's like taking out the trash, right? I don't have to be so concerned about what happens to my trash a week later or two weeks later or a year from now. What do I have to do? I have to bag it up and take it to the curb. That's my sole responsibility. 
So the great thing in, 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 in confession is this. All I've got to do is bag it up, take it to the curb, and leave it there. That's it. I have to take it to the cross and leave it there. Um, which even means I don't even have to be perfectly sorrowful about my sin. Because will I ever be? I mean, I hope so. But if you're really honest about it, you'll say, listen, I'm always kind of mixed up about this. <laughs> like, part of me is really sorry, and part of me is not. Like, part of me knows that, uh, that uh, it was wrong of me to yell at so-and-so, uh, but at the same time, they kind of deserved it. But I feel bad about it, so what do I do, right? You see the point? Um, and so you don't even have to be perfectly contrite. You just have to own it. You have to take it to the curb. You have to say, this is it. One of the most incredible graces, and I want to say this as well, that has happened to me as, as a priest who hears confessions, and most priests do, although some, some for whatever reason, will not, um, and that's another subject, and you'll have to ask them. Um, but it's real simple. Many people come to confession with their hearts deeply grieved by something they've done, and it is immense grace for me to say, I don't think you did anything wrong. And they'll say, well, surely it's... Well, listen, if you've got a conscience that's troubled by it, fine. Um, but I'm telling you, with an objective mind talking about this with you and asking you questions about it, you did not sin. And sometimes people will say, oh, that's such a relief. <laughs> what an amazing thing, right? Because here's what I'd say. Sin is confusing. It messes with our mind. It messes with our will. We don't always see things as they are. Okay, so that's, that's big. It's huge, okay? Um, and, and it's a very helpful thing. Another thing that can happen in confession that I want to encourage you to see is that... Um, it's often the case that people will come in and they'll, they'll be deeply grieved by something that they've done, and done even sometimes repeatedly and continually. And then somewhere down the line, they'll say, yeah, and I really haven't been good about attending church every Sunday, and, and I, I want to be better about that. Um, and I'll ask at the end of the confession, so what, what really troubles your conscience the most? And they'll say, oh, it's this you know, thing that I did with my girlfriend or whatever it is. Uh, it could be any, any number of things. And I'll say, yeah, that's troublesome. What you really need to be concerned about is missing Sunday mornings. Here's why. And it's as if everything falls away because it's the thing that gave me the most grief. An objective person can say, you really need to be concerned about this. Um, and it could be any number of things. But, but it's just to say, sometimes that's very helpful because it's like, well, I can do something about that, Right? I mean, I can mark that down. I can go. Like, I'll go every Sunday now. And, and what do you find? As they engage in that practice, the other sin falls away. Um, because sin is often a lack of prioritization within our spiritual life. And we need to get that right. We need to get that clear. Sometimes it's, I hear a long confession, and it's like, so how's your prayer life? It's like, oh, <laughs> it stinks. It just stinks. And I'm like, I, I, I assume so, right? Um, and I'm not saying that to be proud or arrogant. I'm just saying, like, you know, let's just be honest about it. Your prayer life stinks. And, you know, if, if we can address that, then maybe we can find some progress. And usually we do. Do you see? Um, so this is a great relief, and I want to encourage you to that. It's a great relief. Um, my job as a confessor is not to judge you. My job as a confessor is not to be mad at you, and I'm never mad um, in fact, the, the sin I struggle with is thinking better of those who make their confessions than all the rest. Um, and I have heard every sin confessed, um, unless you're basically confessing to, you know, uh, mass murdering sharks off the coast of Australia, I, I'm going to be completely nonplussed. 
because I've heard it all, okay? And nothing surprises me, and you cannot shock me. If you think you can shock me, that's the sin of pride, and you need to confess that too, okay? Um, now, a word about the seal, okay? The seal of confession, which is what we say um, is, is how we hold in confidence those things that are said in the, in the context of a confession, um, keep in mind that most pastoral interactions which I have are completely confidential anyway. If it's not confidential, I will tell you that. Um, if it cannot possibly be confidential, I will tell you that. Um, but in the context of confession, that seal is absolute. Okay. How do you know you're under seal? You know you're under seal because I will be wearing, or one of the other priests will be wearing, a purple stole. It's that vestment that just hangs over the neck. It's purple, Okay. That is the very clear, unambiguous sign that what you say is under the seal. Okay. As soon as I put that on, the cone of silence is surrounding us. Okay? It's just right there. All right. What is contained in the seal? Everything. Can I ever reveal what's said in the confession ever for any reason? No. That's why we say absolute. Okay? Now you might say, hold up just a second. This gets sticky, and I'm going to anticipate your question, so if I answer it, please let me know. Um, you could protect all kinds of evil through this. Here's, here's what I want to say about that. Um, first off, um, most people who come to a confession um, uh, are, are already either bearing the penalty of law for what they've done, or they're simply not there. So um, most people are completely ready to own up to what they've done. And though everything is contained within the seal, there is no guarantee that you will receive absolution because sometimes the sign that you are truly repentant, even in the slightest way, is that you're submitting to legal ramifications of what you've done. So let me make that clear. The other problem that, that arises is that many people, um, and it's a weird deal and it's hard to describe to you, um, they kind of get their jollies off lying to priests and confessionals. And so much of what I can hear can be just kind of a complete and total fantasy. Now, I will say this. If someone is being prosecuted for a crime and the, only, and the, the key testimony in order to try them for that crime is the testimony of a priest, that's a very slim case indeed. Um, why? Well, they could have lied about it. B, um, there's no material evidence, right? Um, C, well, there are a lot of things where there is no material evidence, right? Um, but here's where we really get down to brass tacks, and, and I want to say this clearly. My job is not to bring sinners to justice. My job is to bring them to the cross. And that is a very weird thing. It's hard for people to understand. It's a very difficult thing to catch. Um, but I will tell you that, um, that it's, it's been very hard at times, very, very difficult at times. Um, but the reason for the seal is so that you, not the horrible murderer or the horrible child molester or whatever it is, so that you, sinner that you are, can come without concern to that sacrament and receive, uh, receive absolution. It's for the same reason that, um, that lawyers have strict confidence. It's for the same reason that psychologists have strict confidence. Um, that's, that's got to be the case. Now, I will say this as well, just to put all concerns to rest. 
if this thing doesn't happen in the context of a confession and somebody talks about it outside of that and I'm not wearing a purple stole, what I can say is, listen, I'm a mandatory reporter. So hold up. Everything you tell me is, is, is liable to that. And I will report. Does that help in, in, so you can see that? Uh, or wait, do you have another question about something else? I just had, I had it in my mind and I wanted to get it all out. So, yeah. Sure. So this is, this is another part of the seal. I am not allowed to act on what I hear in a confession at all in any way whatsoever. So somebody could tell me, like somebody could have said, I'm going to make my confession this morning at 7.30 this morning, and uh, they say, hey, you know, I put a bomb under the altar. It's going to go off about 10.45. Have fun with that. The bomb would go off. Now that's scary, Right? But let's be, let's be clear about this. This is the teaching. The church is a vehicle of God's grace, not of justice. And we have been slowly deluded into thinking that we are a body which holds justice above mercy. It's just not true. So when, when you ask that question, I say to myself, like, I'm not allowed to treat anybody any differently. Um, I'm not allowed to even treat them better. Um, all I can do is say, and, and actually, this becomes rather easy over time. Um, surprised, it was a surprise to me that it became easy, but I'll tell you how. It became easy to me because most sin is absolutely boring. Nobody's unique. Nobody's special. Nobody gets to claim, like, you know, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm so much more of a sinner than anyone else. Because let me tell you what the reality is, right? The reality of it is that if you're a Christian, you are bidden to believe that you are the worst sinner, the worst of sinners. Listen to Paul on this. He says, I am the worst of sinners. Now, I always read that like, ha, 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 ha. Yeah, right. I mean, Paul, he, he was a very holy man, like a saint. And then I think, oh, wait, he was Saul at one point. So yeah, that's true. And then I think about myself and I think like, I have done some absolutely horrible things in my life. I'm the worst of sinners too. And the deal is, um, I've actually had the occasion to hear some confessions from some people where I was like, it was like being pelted to death with marshmallows. Because it was like, really? I mean, we're at, at the end I want to kind of say like, why don't you go do some real sinning and then come back? Um, but, but what I had to learn was, and I learned this very early on, for them it was a miserable wait. Because everybody perceives it differently. Does that make sense? Um, but I will tell you now, um, hearing confessions is one of the most boring things I have to do because I'm never surprised. I'm never shocked, ever. I've heard it all, all. You're not going to surprise me. Um, and if anything, if anything, um, it's actually helped in parish ministry. Um, and I'll tell you the reason. The reason is that if I know anything, I know what sin is like. And I know what it's like for you. And I know what it's like for me. And, um, and it allows me to be, to be an encourager, right? 
Because here's, here's the problem, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it with this. We'll talk about the next two sacraments later. Um, or the next three, I guess. Um, and we need that time. Most people in their state of, of sin simply need to be encouraged. And the encouragement is simple. It's, you're the sinner Christ died for. It's not all the other sinners, and you're special. It's like, no, you're, you're the one. And I can say firmly that that's the case. I'll, I'll leave you with one story. When I was in seminary, I, had to, I, I, I made a confession to a man who would later be my bishop. And uh, he, was always, he always, always had health problems. And so he sat in his little motorized scooter, <laughs> and he heard my confession. And we were in this like room at the seminary, and, uh, and it was hard for me to get through. I mean, it, was, it, was, it was a pretty difficult year, and I was really embarrassed, and I was kind of like, oh, it's really tough. And, and I finished up, and he raised up his hand like this. And I winced, because I thought he was going to hit me. And he, with tears in his eyes, he said, praise Jesus. And he's like, you, you are entirely clean now. You. He looked me in the eye and he said, praise God for that. And, and I, I, it was the, he was the only person who was able to say that to me at that point and have it make any sense whatsoever. Because I was standing there consistently condemning myself. Does that make sense? And that's what you do when you're in the midst of sin. You can't hear grace. You can't hear Jesus died for you. It doesn't work because you think you're special, and that's prideful. <laughs> and a good confessor, and, and I think we've got a lot of good confessors here, can just say, it's over. It's over. Um, as far as the east is from the west, it's gone. Um, and, and, and this is to say that... Um, um, well, and I want to go back to something I said before. No one must do this. So hear that strongly. No one must do this. But I can say to you that um, <laughs> the reach of priestly ministry is actually quite short, and I can't really do that much for you. I can really do a couple things really well for you. I can, I can make sure you receive communion. I can preach a little bit. You know, I, can, I can preach a decent sermon. I can catechize you. But the biggest thing I can do for you is restore you to grace restore you to that life of, of, of being the child of God. Um, and I can tell you that the people I know, I've known through the years who have been intent about this have not only become by gradation holier and holier in their own life, but there are sins which absolutely beset them for years and years and years which they've been able to give up where they were actually enslaved to these sins, and they gave it up. Because what they didn't need to hear was a bunch of methods to avoid sin. They didn't need to hear a bunch of ways to manage their behavior. That wasn't it. They needed to hear um, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has left power to his church to absolve all sinners who truly repent and believe in him. Of his great mercy may he forgive you all your offenses, and by his authority committed to me, I absolve you from all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's so straightforward, but it is very powerful. Um, so I offer that to you. If you'd like to make a confession, all you got to do is just schedule it. You know, say to one of the priests, like, hey, can we meet for confession this week? And he'll say, yes, absolutely. What time do you want to meet? And, and, it's, and it's that easy. Um, usually I will meet you in the church. Uh, some like to meet in my office. 
It's really up to them. Um, but I will tell you that if your conscience, and this is how you know you need to, if your conscience is racked by something and you can't put it behind you and you find that you're continually doing this thing or you're continually troubled by it, that's a sure sign that it's time. Um, so I want to make that want to make that clear and say we got a great wealth here in having five priests, so there is no excuse for waiting at all, right? Um, confessions are one of the things that I will absolutely drop everything to do. I don't care if it's my day off. I don't care if it's Saturday. I don't care if it's right after the Eucharist on a Sunday, which is like the most frenetic time of all. If you say, I need to, then I will be like, let's go. <laughs> um, because, because it can't wait. It just can't wait. Now's the day. So um, we'll start back next week. We're going to talk about uh, unction and anointing for healing, and we're going to talk about marriage, and we're also going to talk about holy orders. So it's going to be a fun week. All right, thank you all.